everyone, please have your Bibles open at Matthew chapter 5 as we look at these verses together this morning. Let me pray for us. Father, the words that we speak are fallible. Um, and the promises that we make, we have no real power to make sure that those things come to pass. But we can stand on your promises. Your word cannot fail. And so as we open that word this morning, Lord, please help us to hear it with ears of faith, to trust those promises, to trust your word, to listen carefully to your voice. Speak to us, we pray this morning. Amen. Now, don't you hate it when people change things and you don't really know why they did it, right? That can be very, very frustrating. And apparently, most, it's interesting how the nods come from older people. Uh, maybe, it, maybe it's more of a, a difficulty as you get older too. You know, why do these people do this? Now, when I went to uh, secondary school, I started secondary school in the first year. And then um, I stayed on. And after five years, I went to sixth form. The numbers are all making sense, aren't they? Then they started calling the first years year seven. It was a downhill sort of slope from there, wasn't it? But because those year seven still went on five years later to go to sixth form. And to top it off, I, d I discovered when I taught abroad that year seven for us is sixth grade for just about everyone else in the world. So there's another number out. I did GCSEs, right? And I can remember my brothers and sisters moaning about how their O-levels were of a completely different standard from these GCSEs. And of course, we all suspected, didn't we, that the standards actually are continuing to drop because GCSEs and A-levels just kept getting better each year. The, the results just kept getting better each year. Yeah? So every year, better than... I mean, are we really? Well, maybe we are just getting that much more intelligent. But so much so that they started to give A-stars. And then A-star stars. It's just weird. You know, a kid, a little kid comes up to you today. says, how many A-stars did you get? I didn't get any A-stars. They weren't a thing. You know, A is where the alphabet began for us. And so more recently, it seems, in a bid to silence the uh, suspicious minds of perhaps my generation and older, now they give them numbers. Do you know that? Numbers instead of letters. So they don't come out with an A at GCSE. They come out with an 8 or a 7. It's a 7, isn't it, for an A? So they can go 7, 8, 9. It's just, it's mad. It's maddening, isn't it? And it, it all goes to make it very, very hard to know what the equivalent really is of an A grade 20 years ago in today's money, doesn't it? We, we don't even know how, I don't even know how educated I am anymore. I've got no clue. Have they changed the standards? Have they moved the goalposts? It's maddening. Now, it seems pretty certain to me that Jesus was accused of pretty much the same thing regarding God's standards. Interesting, isn't it? For well over 1,000 years, the Jews had been, at least in theory, trying to live by the rules that God gave them through Moses, rules like the Ten Commandments, the laws that govern their day-to-day -day life, 
and the laws that govern their temple worship. It was all written down and it was all taught to them in the synagogues and from their religious leaders. And you can hardly blame people for thinking that when Jesus comes along, what's he doing? Is he trying to abolish the law? This law that's been in place for so long. I mean, what would make you think that? Well, perhaps because Jesus was always clashing with the experts in the law. You know, they were always clashing together, he and the Pharisees and the law experts. They were always accusing him of breaking the law. You know, the people you looked up to for what the law was were accusing Jesus of breaking it, especially the Sabbath law. And he seemed to frequently do things that were a bit suspect. You know, he was touching unclean people all the time. Does Jesus have no regard for these laws? Touching lepers, dealing with sick people hands-on all the time? And with regard to the food laws, think about it. Jesus publicly declares, listen to this from Mark chapter 7, nothing outside a man can make him unclean. I mean, if you know your Old Testament, that's pretty outrageous, isn't it? It can't make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it's what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. And we're told, actually, that those later on, that saying was understood by, by, by Christians to mean that Jesus is saying all foods are now clean. Something's changed. And Jesus presents himself as doing something new. He makes no bones about it. He, he presents himself as bringing something that actually won't fit with the old. He says this in Mark chapter 2. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth onto an old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wineskins will burst, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, he pours new wine into new wineskins. Something new and radical is going on here that won't fit with the old. And so I think it's very appropriate and understandable, actually, that as Jesus now leaves the introduction to his sermon and gets into the meat of what he is going to say, uh, that he is going to deal with this very issue. This is a sermon all about the new kingdom, the kingdom of God, which has now arrived with Jesus. And so Jesus is addressing the issue here of just how the old, the covenant that was made with Moses, will give way to the covenant of his kingdom, a new one. Now, this is tricky stuff. Just to warn you, scholars agree that these are some of the trickiest verses in the Bible. Okay? This is not easy stuff. There are issues behind these verses that are very, very complicated. But we are, in our inimitable style, going to try, fearlessly try and, and pick out the big idea of what's going on here and what Jesus is teaching. You can have hours of fun in your home groups later, raising all of the difficult, tricky, awkward questions that these verses will raise, and they do if you think about them. But to take us through these verses this morning, we're just going to have three simple headings. Faultless failure and fulfillment. That's what's going on, I think, in these verses. So let's look at the first. Look with me at verse 17. Faultless. Verse 17, do you think, says Jesus, that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets? I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen 
will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Now, so to all of those that might think that Jesus is disregarding the law, that might bring that accusation against him, that Jesus is doing his own thing, he's a maverick, he's out of control, Jesus states it really clearly here, doesn't he? I have not come to abolish them, he says. That's not what I've come to do. Now, the word abolish has quite a wide range of meaning, as most words do. But they're all, they're all very destructive, the meanings of this word abolish. It means to destroy, to demolish, to dismantle, to overthrow, to throw down, all of these ideas. I'm, actually, I'm informed that it, it actually is a word used for if you had a building in, a, in the wrong place that you wanted to get rid of, put a new building up, this is what you would do to it. The abolishing is, is a demolition. It's to destroy the structure completely uh, and sweep it away for the new. And Jesus says, no, that's not what I've come to do. In fact, Jesus goes on to insist, look, that until heaven, I mean, it can't get stronger than this, until heaven and earth disappear or until everything is accomplished, not one tiny bit of the law will disappear. In fact, this is where we get the, the, the expression, not one iota. That's really what's literally being said here. Jesus is saying that even the punctuation points and the little stylistic flourishes on the, the font that you're using in the law, that's the detail he's going down to. All of those things from the books of the law and the prophets, they are there to stay until every single thing that they talk about is done and basically, creation ends. That's what he's saying, isn't it? And this is consistent with everything that you're going to read in Jesus' sermon in what follows. Far from removing anything, if you, if you know this, what, what comes next in the sermon, in the paragraphs that follow, we see Jesus strengthening what the law says. We see him drawing us deeper into what God requires from us. Now, God has always required that his people are righteous. They should be righteous. To be righteous means to be, basically, morally and ethically right in the sight of God himself. In the sight of God's holy eyes, to be mor morally and ethically right... That means to be absolutely faultless, to be without any flaws, morally, ethically. Nothing then has changed. Listen to the book of, uh, of Leviticus given by Moses. Leviticus 19, we read, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, Be holy, because I, the Lord your God, I'm holy. Do you see the standard there? Now look at Matthew 5, verse 48. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Do you see how nothing has changed in the standard God requires? I mean, imagine an exam then. This is the situation you and I find ourselves in. We're, we've got an exam here where the pass mark is 100%. There's no room for errors or slip-ups. No red ink to be on the page. 
100% to pass, that necessarily means if you get 99%, what have you done? It's not good effort, well done, nice try. No, it's fail. Fail. Now, the interesting thing, okay, is that that <laughs> doesn't really seem to bother the law-keeping experts of Jesus' day. No one kept the law better, arguably, than the Pharisees did. Now, they're going to get a mention in just a moment in, in our text. But they were a fastidious group of people. In an effort to keep clean, legalistically sort of clean, according to the law, they were constantly washing their hands and washing their pots and washing their bowls and straining their drinks just in case some unclean microbe might be in there that needed straining out. And they, they would measure off, because they knew they had to give a tenth of everything, they were going to measure off. They'd go to, go to their little herb garden, their little window box, where they're keeping a few bits of mint, and you know, like we have on our windowsill, a bit of basil, that sort of thing. They're going to tent that. They're going to pull off every tenth leaf. That's got to go to God. And they eventually compiled a list of 613 commandments that they'd found going through with the, the Old Testament with a fine-tooth comb. And it was their practice then, looking at all of those commandments, to then do what they called uh, putting a protective hedge around them to stop those commands being broken. For example, here's an example. Exodus 23, 19. You all know that one, don't you? It prohibits cooking a kid, that is a baby goat, by the way, uh, in its mother's milk, right? Now, none of you do that, do you? You're not having goat, cremola goat or whatever it is. Uh, and so a hedge around that law eventually became the requirement to keep a kosher kitchen, to maintain two separate sets of cooking utensils, one for dairy products, the other for non-dairy products, lest one might inadvertently introduce some minute residue of milk into a pot that was then going to be used to cook the meat of a, of a, of a young goat that might be related to it. It was a systematic approach, do you see, what they were doing, to being perfect. They were trying to be perfect. And they truly believed they could do it, they could crack this. Which brings me to my second point this morning. Failure. Flawless, but failure. Because no one can meet God's requirement. Have a look at verse 19. I mean, let the strength of these words hit you. Verse 19. Anyone, says Jesus, who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, listen to this, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Let that sink in. That last line would have been a huge shock, especially to the Pharisees, who were no doubt auditing every word that Jesus said as he's preaching on the mountain. See those fastidious Pharisees, says Jesus. You've got to do better than them. If you want to enter the kingdom of God, be part of this kingdom, you've got to leave them in the dust where it comes to, to righteousness. And the Pharisees, you see, they are, figuratively speaking, 
sitting back smugly in God's exam room. They're confident that they've aced the test. They've put the pen down, basically. Little realizing, as the time runs out, this is what Jesus is going to reveal to them, they're going to discover that actually the paper has another side to it. Imagine the panic. Time running out, time, time called on the exam, and you turn it, oh, I missed like 80% of the exam. Now, perhaps it seems strange to us that anyone could believe that they actually do meet this standard, that they are righteous. They're just trying to get under the skin of what these people were like. The Apostle Paul, who used to count himself amongst their number as a Pharisee, he tells us that he did, he himself did indeed have that confidence at one point. Isn't this amazing? Listen to what he says in Philippians chapter 3. Perhaps you know it. We preached the Philippians recently, so, so, so some of you should. Philippians 3 verse 4. Jesus says this, uh, so Paul says this, I myself have reasons for such confidence. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the tribe of Israel, of the, tri of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless, says Paul. I mean, look at those credentials. His parents gave him a leg up even, from the, even at the start without him doing anything himself. They fulfilled the requirements of the law through circumcision. They gave him a solid family line background heritage. You know, he's, a, he's of the tribe, but he knows what tribe he comes from. And as far as the letter of the law is concerned, look at that in verse 6 there. Faultless, says Paul. That is what anyone in the know, anyone who knew Paul who was a Pharisee, that's what they would have known about Paul. They said, yeah, Paul, he's faultless. He's got, he's got it nailed, this man. He never put a foot out of place. And if he did, you could guarantee he was bang up to date with going down to the temple and sorting it out, doing some sort of an offering. But Paul came to realise that it was all actually a sham. He came to call all of those achievements loss and rubbish. Now it's clear from our text that there, is, there was something seriously, as far as Jesus is concerned, seriously defective about the righteousness of the Pharisees. Look at what he's saying there. You've got to do better than that, says Jesus. And Jesus summed up the problem with them. In it. There's an extended section actually toward the end of Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 23, where he renounces woe after woe after woe on the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. But, but look at just one verse of it in Matthew 23, verse 13. It gets to the heart of the issue. Woe to you, says Jesus, you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter, and nor will you let those enter who are trying to. You see, by insisting and, and indeed instructing others that the way to be righteous was found in careful, obsessive observance of the law, not only did they not qualify because they're barking up the wrong tree, nor will they let those enter 
who are also want, want to enter. They're effectively slamming the door in men's faces to the kingdom of God. The fact of the matter is, not one of us can pass God's exam. If you want to enter God's kingdom, there has to be another way. Do you see that? And that's my final point this morning. I hope I've driven you to that point, that that's what you want to know. Because we've seen that God's standard is faultless. And we've seen that there's a failure for any of us to achieve it. But what if someone actually could? What if someone could do it? Let's look again at verse 13. Sorry, verse 17. <laughs> Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, this is the tricky verse. This is the one that all the arguments happen about. We've considered what it means, you see, that Jesus didn't come to abolish or to destroy or get rid of the law. But what does it actually mean when, it, when Jesus says here that he came to fulfill the law? Now, large volumes have been written on this. Matthew uses the word fulfill, this word fulfill here, more times in his gospel than it is used in any other book in the New Testament. Matthew likes this word fulfill. And that's helpful to us in understanding it. Because just about every time Matthew uses it, it means the same thing. As Don Carson, Professor Don Carson puts it, it means, get this, to be that to which another party points. To be that to which another party has pointed. So note that Jesus does not say here that he came to keep the law. He certainly did keep the law. That's right, isn't it? Jesus kept the law. But he doesn't say that that's what he came to do. Nor does he say that he came to, you know what, to just rub that law, rub your face in the law. Though he certainly does do that in the following verses too. He's going to do that. Here he is saying that the law, and notice as well, look carefully at the verse, the law and the prophets are pointing to him. He came to fulfill them. Now you've got to You've got to realise the expression, the law and the prophets, is actually, it's an idiomatic way of actually referring to the whole of the Old Testament. It's referring to the whole of the Bible in Jesus' day. So later on in Matthew's Gospel, in chapter 11, Jesus says this, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing, and forceful men lay hold of it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. You see what's going on there? Notice the law. We think of the law as just like a, a whole collection of rules. And in a sense, kind of the law is. But actually he's saying that the law is prophetic as well. The law is, the law is predicting something. It's looking towards something. It's not just an end in itself, do you see? And in fact, Jesus indicated as much when he was walking with those disciples. Do you remember on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, the verse that we like to quote? We learn that the best Bible study here that was ever conducted is conducted whilst walking on this road. This is why our Emmaus ramblers do the same thing. 
In Luke chapter 24, verse 27, Jesus said, we're told here by Luke, beginning with Moses, the law, and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning him. So what does it mean that Jesus fulfills the entire Old Testament? Because that's what he's saying. It means that everything in the Old Testament, everything in the Old Testament part of the Bible is pointing to Jesus. All of it is, ref is, is, is referring to him. And everything then that shapes and constitutes his kingdom, this new kingdom that's come, well, it's got to, first of all, pass through the king before it comes to us. I want you to just sort of get that pictured in your mind. It all has to come through him. Now, this means that, as Jesus has so forcefully put it, the Old Testament is our book. That's great, isn't it? The Old Testament is ours. It's a, it's a book that belongs to the people of God's kingdom. Now, history is full of people who've wanted to take a pair of scissors to the Bible, especially to the Old Testament. It's thought that the Sadducees in Jesus' day, they only accepted the first five books, the first five books of Moses. They certainly didn't believe in the resurrection. They seemed to have a, str a struggle, really, with anything that was supernatural. The Samaritans did pretty much the same thing. They only really used the books of Moses. And then in the second century, just as the church is getting on its feet, a heretic called Marcion turns up, and he teaches people uh, that, the, the, that Jesus was actually presenting to us a new God who was nothing like that bungling Hebrew God of the Old Testament who made the world. To fit his version of Jesus, Marcion uh, produced a list of books in the Bible that he considered authoritative. His list was, was much smaller than the list that we have. He completely rejected the Old Testament as of no value at all to Christians. And he included only the Gospel of Luke, the Book of Acts, and ten of the letters that Paul had written. That was Marcion's Bible. In the 19th century, did you know this? Thomas Jeff Jefferson took a scalpel to the Gospels as well. He decided that the miracles were no good and just basically, literally just cut them all out. And many churches today, practically speaking, do something pretty similar. Be very careful. The Old Testament's our book. It's for us. We joyfully proclaim what Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And you've got to remember that the scriptures in those days is basically the Old Testament. The rest of it's being written, still in process. Now, what does that mean? It means that even the bits about not sowing your field with two types of seed, about boiling, not boiling a kid in its mother's milk, about not wearing mixed fabrics. It means that all the bits about the comings and goings at the temple, the laws about purification and diseases and mold and mildew, 
all of that good stuff that Tiago likes to try and rub our faces in on an evening, all of it, not one iota, is to be removed. It belongs to us. But all of it, first of all, points to Jesus. All of it has to go through him. What we must never do, okay, picture it like this. I wish I made a slide for this. Imagine Jesus here. We have our Old Testament here, the New Testament there, and Jesus here. What we must never do, I mean, there should be an alarm goes off in your head. If anyone goes Old Testament, <laughs> New Testament. Everything for us goes through Jesus to the new. Do you see that? That's what we're saying here. We understand it all. We obey it all through him. Now, in your home groups, you can work all of the details out on that one. I've just opened the can of worms now for you. I take it this is what Paul means when he writes to the Corinthians. Listen to this. He's explaining the way that he behaves when he's doing missionary work. Listen. He says, To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, says Paul, so as to win those who are under the law. Now, listen how he goes on. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law. I mean, come on, make your mind up, Paul. No, listen, listen to what he says. I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law. So as to win those not having the law. Do you see that? Paul does not under, understand himself to be under the law of Moses, just like everybody else still within Judaism. But he is still under God's law. But something new has happened. Now it is Christ's law that he is under. Now this then, if, if you're understanding all that, this is a staggering statement from Jesus, actually. This is ab ab absolutely epoch-making, really. <laughs> Especially for his audience there. He is saying that it is actually his word that we must listen to and obey. The Old Testament, the law and the prophets, they are perfect and they are wonderful, but we must read them through him. What difference does he, his life, his death, his resurrection, his glorification, what difference does all of that make? Okay, so what... What then of this righteousness that the law requires? Because that surely is the biggest issue of them all. That's the concern of the law, isn't it? What do we do about this perfection that is required? Well, it will not be found through the law. Oh, the law points us to it. But it won't be found through the law. I mean, that's plain enough. If the Pharisees can't do it, what, what hope have you or I got? I mean, they've oriented their entire life to trying no, instead, it must be found in Christ. The Apostle Paul sums it up you know, beautifully in, in one of the most important turning points in his letter to the church in Rome, where he says this. And listen carefully, in the, with all that we've just said this morning, bouncing around in your head, which I'm sure it is now, look carefully at how Paul words this in Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now, says Paul, for all and any of you who have come to realise your spiritual bankruptcy, 
who have come to realize that you fall far short of ever achieving the standard that God has set down for you. But now, a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify, prophesy, point. Got it? Do you see how this righteousness, the righteousness that's going to see us through, the 100% mark on the exam paper, comes from a source other than the law? Yet it is a, it is a righteousness to which the whole of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, are pointing. And what is this righteousness? How may it then be obtained by you and I? Well, as we close, let's look again at uh, what Paul says, after, after having given us his CV there, you remember, the Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, faultless. Listen to how he continues. He says, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to, to, the, to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things, I consider them rubbish that I might gain Christ and in him be found, uh, and be found in him, listen, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. The righteousness that we so badly need, do you see where it is? It is found in Jesus Christ himself. It is found in him who kept the law faultlessly, who was completely, perfectly righteous in the sight of his father. He bids us to come to him and to receive all that we need from his gracious provision. That's the gospel. It's a gift. It's not received by works. It's not received by being born into the right family or the right country nor by fastidious law-keeping or heroic acts of effort. It's received, says Paul here, by, by faith, by simply putting your trust in him. His salvation, then, what will save us is a gift from God, a gift put into those empty, open hands of the one who comes owning their, their poverty, their bankruptcy spiritually, their inability, mourning their sin, trusting in the unfailing promises of God. All of which are pointing, like a great big neon flashing sign, to the king of his kingdom, Jesus Christ. Well, I look forward to unpacking more of that next week, but let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We praise his name. He towards whom all history leads and in whom all your plans and promises are fulfilled. He is the centre and object of our salvation and of our worship, the glorious king of your kingdom. And so we praise him, Jesus Christ, your only beloved and precious son, our saviour, the one who has done it all. Father, we ask that, that each of us would live our lives trusting and obeying him, listening to his every word. He, our rock, 
and our salvation. In whose good name we pray. Amen.